When we read the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think, what? Jesus died for your sins so you don't have to go to hell, so you can go to heaven. That's what we say as being saved. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. In our last podcast, Tori introduced what's so great about salvation. And this week, he goes deeper into what it means to be saved and from what are we being saved. Here is Tori Bjorkland, president of TRC Ministries. The writer of Hebrews wrote in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so this section of my series is entitled, So Great a Salvation. And it asks the question, What's so great about salvation? I, last week I went through the intro, and so I'm going to kind of rip through it today. This was my opening verses here with, uh, you, you might recognize the one in Acts 16 where the jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And uh, of course their response, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. I, I feel like we really don't, use that word well, saved. And so that was, that was kind of my way of making that point, and we covered that a little bit last, last week, but we'll talk a little more about that. So what does it mean to be saved? I told you the story last week about my grade school attempt to witness at, by asking my grade school friend if he had ever been saved, and he proceeded to tell me about his harrowing experience of when he the chain came off on his bike when he was headed down a very steep hill into a highway in Flagstaff. And like I said, I don't remember the details of his experience and how he managed to escape certain death, but I did remember being rather dejected and, and being kind of frustrated that I had no more tools in my witnessing toolbox. And uh, so I gave up the conversation right there. But it really comes to this question, what, what does it mean? And to be saved. And so I decided to break this down into a few different questions. So one of which, what, from what are we being saved? And the corollary to that is, to what are we being saved? In what way are we being saved? And that's kind of like saying, how does it happen? And some of the questions, I mean, this is a, that's actually a pretty broad question. You know, does it just come upon you? You know, what's our role? What, how do we participate? Is there anything that we do about that? What's the result of this salvation? And one of the verses, 1 Peter 2.2, talks about growing in salvation. And um, you might remember Jesus talking to uh, Nicodemus, and he said that no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again, born of water and spirit. Is that the same thing as being saved? Could we say nobody is saved unless they are born of water and spirit. You know, could we put that in place of that phrase? All right, so those were some of the questions that we put out there. And um, I am going to jump into some of my thoughts here. So we're going to talk about what does it mean to be saved, but then after we get a handle on that, then we come to the question of how are we saved and things like that. So we're going to try to cover some of that as well. So we answer the question sometimes that the jailer asked with only the first phrase or the first sentence presented by 
Paul and, and or Silas. So you remember the question of the jailer, what must I do to be saved? You remember that? And they answered in 1632 that you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You and your household. And we, we end there. But if you read the passage, um, somebody tell me, what does the very next verse say? Acts chapter 16, verse 32. Acts 16, 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. This is something I think we tend to leave out when, we, when people want to know about salvation. Speaking the word of the Lord to him and everybody in his household. So this raises the question in my mind, what is the word of the Lord? Or let me ask it a different way. What do you think they said to him? Now, let me just put those two together. What is the word of the Lord? When you thought about that question, would your answer be the same as what do you think they said? You know that Jesus many times talked about faith, didn't he? Let's think for a minute about the time that the disciples were in the boat. Do you remember they were in a boat? And a big storm came up and Jesus was sleeping. And what happened? What did they do? Any kids remember that story? You remember that story? Okay, they woke Jesus up. They said, we're about to die. Save us. We're going to die. We're all going to die here. And he says, what are you guys worried about? He calmed, the, he calmed the storm. But what did he reference there? Oh, you of little faith. But wait a minute, didn't they expect him to be able to save them? Did they not place their faith in Jesus for salvation at that moment? Yep. Why did he say that they were of little faith? So I'm not going to answer the question for you. I'm just asking it because I want you to think a little bit about the way that Jesus taught about faith. Because when we start talking about faith, we need to realize what the disciples actually taught people, if you go throughout Acts and actually throughout the New Testament, when we read the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think, what? Jesus died for your sins so you don't have to go to hell, so you can go to heaven. That's what we say as being saved. Do you think that that was the word of the Lord? When, when we want to answer this question, sometimes we just leave one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Or, or Romans 10, if you confess, 10.9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And these are true. This is true statements. Then the question, though, to me, again, goes back to what's so great about salvation. Is this it? Is this the only thing that has to do with salvation? And that may seem like a simple question, or maybe that's a doesn't-need-to-be-asked kind of question, a rhetorical question maybe even. But there really is a lot of debate about that question specifically. And I plan for us to get into this, not today, but there's a, a debate about for example, lordship salvation or not. There's a, there's a camp that says believing is all that's necessary and anything else, the teachings of Jesus or anything else, are just teachings of wisdom, not of salvation. Everything else is optional. 
And they were very devout and intelligent people that would make a pretty strong case for that. And then there's another camp that says, no, you have to allow Jesus to be your Lord. And that makes him your savior. You've probably heard the phrase, Lord and Savior. We've, we have this culture, this Christian culture, where we, we have phrases and things. We don't realize, in some cases, how charged those phrases are, or the history from which they came, where there was amount of turmoil around the difference between Lord and Savior. Is there a difference? And I don't really want to stir up that turmoil, but I will say that we will address those questions in our own lives and we will face them in our own lives. And so I want to be the one to give you what I believe are satisfying and biblical answers to those questions. And I think they're very important questions. So these simple sayings are easy to remember and they certainly give an answer to the question of how we become saved. I believe that they do give an answer. But I believe that we are also not honoring our claim to believe the entire Bible if we assert that they are the only answer that have been given in the Bible to that question. Or that they fully address the question of salvation and the greatness of salvation. So let's, let's look at some of the words of the Lord. I will mention that I actually have, I've been in the camp that straddles this. It's sort of interesting. Okay, the question of what must we do? And by the way, I, you might notice I have that must underlined in one sentence and then we underlined in the other sentence. You know why that is? Because there's that question, what must we do to be saved? The question of must and the question of we is really a big issue. In other words, is there anything we can do to be saved? That's the we side of it. Is there anything that we have to do to be saved? That's the must side of it. And some people will answer the question with absolutely nothing. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to be saved. There's others that will go to the other extreme and say, hey, if you're going to come to Jesus, you got to clean up your act. And then I kind of grew up in a tradition that's sort of the saved now pay later plan. And you absolutely nothing except that once you are, you ain't got it unless you do clean up your act or you never got the first thing. Is that familiar with some others have come across that? But one of the things that, and again, I'm, I know it's, I'm just kind of, teasing some of you or tantalizing you, and we will get into some of these things, but many people that teach that you cannot lose your salvation, for example, will say, well, if your act isn't cleaned up after you confess, then it was a false confession. It was a false salvation. You were never actually saved if you don't clean up your act. And what starts out with good intentions of helping people to feel secure in their salvation, because you can never lose it in their view, actually turns out to make it so slippery you have no idea if you ever got it to be lost. And these are things that we might not be challenged with in our own life, or we might. But I've known many, many people that struggle 
with those very questions. Have I ever been saved? And because if we face these issues of desire like we talked about a few months back and we find ourselves failing, if we sit under the teaching that if our act is not cleaned up after we make a profession of faith, the profession of faith must not have been real. And if we find ourselves in that position, it can really lead to despair, and I think unnecessarily so. So, we talked about what is the word of the Lord, and I just want to bring up one here, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Here's an interesting one to me. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus himself said that there would be people who confess him as Lord who are removed from his presence. It's also interesting. I just challenge you to do this little word study. Look up the word believed in the four Gospels and find every time that it said those who believed in him or believed in him. You look that up. It's a very interesting word study. Here in 721 through 23, I'll read it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, do, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Now here's an interesting thing for the charismatics, which, by the way, I'll, I'll just put myself in that camp, okay? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. By the way, pop quiz. What did Jesus say life was? Eternal life. Let's say it that way. What did Jesus say was eternal life? Knowing God and knowing God and Jesus, okay? Depart from me, I never knew you. I think that, um, tuck that away. Well, that might be an important clue right there. So, that Matthew 7.21 is, is only one of those. You'll find others in the gospel. Another one, Matthew 25, for example, I had memorized at one time. Jesus tells of the day when he will judge all the nations by separating them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. Do you remember that? And he'll put the sheep on one side and the goats on the other side, and the sheep will be invited to come and inherit a kingdom while the goats will be commanded to depart into eternal fire. Now, I realize that people have elaborate explanations to explain why these are not speaking of issues of salvation. And this goes back to the discussion. There are sincere, godly people that will tell you that Jesus, in this example, as well as in Matthew 25, was not speaking of issues of salvation. It looks like it. It, but there's elaborate ways to explain that, how that is not the case. And I, I guess if you want to look into that, I seriously can't represent it, probably giving it its due worth. So I would encourage you to look up um, an example of that would be Charles Ryrie. And um, he's written several, several books, and he's very articulate. And you can see a, an explanation of, of this. But I want to say, even if their interpretation is correct, the point that I believe that it's, it, it supports here is that simply to say believe in Jesus as this answer, the entire answer of how to be saved, are not the only word on the topic. And if somebody spends a little time reading through the Bible, they're going to be faced with these questions. 
And we, as believers, and especially as we mature, need to have some answers to deal with these. So my point here is that this is a complicated topic. And unfortunately, by taking a simplistic view, it has been made more complicated than it needs to be, in large part by the prevailing Western teaching of the recent centuries. And I think it was with good intention that the protest movement, the Protestant movement, was leaning against a legalistic doctrine. And in the process of leaning against that, they have managed to erect and put together some terminology that we have taken to the nines, as it were. We run with it. And it has created some difficulties for us to really come to realize and experience the reality of what salvation is all about. So we had a few other questions on the list that we wanted to talk about a little bit here. And that is, from what are we being saved? That was the first one. And so I want to start there. The first part of this answer could be found in Matthew 121. This was when the angel told Joseph what to name the boy. So, so Joseph was thinking about quietly putting Mary aside because she was now pregnant, and he knew he was not the one who had gotten her pregnant. And an angel came to him and said, It's okay, Joseph. She was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you shall name this child, you shall name this son, this boy, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's in Matthew 1.21. Now, of course, this is mildly because it raises another question, which is, um, in what way are we saved from sin? But we'll have to save that question for later. Um, but we will pursue the one on hand here. And this is a little bit helpful. It, salvation from sin was part of what Jesus was all about. Whatever that means, and we'll have to explore that, but that's one of the things that salvation means. The next part of the answer of what it means to be saved, or from what are we being saved, let's say it that way, the next part of the answer comes from Jesus when he said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, if you compare that, that's Matthew 16, 25, by the way, 25 and 26. If you compare that with Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So if you put those, kind of, those two together, you'll see that we can be saved from the destruction of our soul and body in hell. So, saving the people from their sins, destroying both soul and body in hell, which is Matthew 10, 28. So, this is something from which we can be saved, or something from which we need to be saved. Okay, another part of the answer is in Mark's rendition of the Great Commission. So we have these words in uh, Mark 16, 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So we can see that being saved is contrasted to being condemned. 
So this is kind of the clue. If you want to answer what does the Bible mean when it uses a word, many times you'll see it being contrasted. And when you see a contrast, then you, you have the antonym. And, a, and you can see the context in which it's used, so you kind of get a feeling for that word. So this is similar to John 12, 47. He says, I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world, which indicates salvation is from what? From judgment. I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. So salvation is being saved from judgment. Another related passage is in Paul's letter to the Romans. Having been justified by his blood, we saved from the wrath of God through him, through Jesus. That's Romans 5, 9. So here salvation is from the wrath of God. But notice, interestingly, this is in the future tense. Did you pick up on that? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So in regards to the wrath of God, we are not yet experiencing the salvation from the wrath of God, but we are anticipating that. You might remember in Romans 1, Paul said that the wrath of God is being what? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There is a certain wrath of God from which we are today being saved, but there is yet another wrath of God yet to be revealed and that the Bible talks about storing up wrath when according this is Paul again who are storing up wrath when according to my gospel God will world and that's another wrath of God the seven bulls those are poured out on the world on the earth okay so being saved from wrath is, an, is another thing and there's a wrath from which we are saved in a sense today and that is the wrath that's being revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But we are also anticipating being saved from the wrath of God that has been stored up for final judgment. There's another related passage. I guess I mentioned this one. Having been justified, this is Romans 5, 9. We are saved from the wrath of God through him. Okay. Also in Romans, Paul mentions that we have that in hope we have been saved, Romans 8, 24. From what are we being saved in this passage? Anybody remember? Think about the end of Romans 8. What's it talking about? The redemption of creation. So from what we are being saved, surprisingly, it is our decaying physical body. The hope of which he speaks is the redemption of our body. We get a new body. And that new body will fit us more perfectly than this body does. And so as this body is decaying, just as the earth is itself, all of creation, waiting for redemption, we will have, there will be a, a bodily component to the redemption that we have or the salvation that we have. That bodily component is something that we yet hope for, something we have not yet experienced. And it is a deliverance. A deliverance for which we yet hope. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. This is contrasted to those who are perishing. So those who are in the process of being saved, which is an interesting verb tense there, who are in the process of being saved are being saved from perishing. What does it mean to perish? Anybody purchase perishable goods? Yeah, we have food that perishes. Well, what, is, what does it mean when 
it rots and decomposes and so perishing is is the loss it, it could mean the loss of life it could mean dying it could also mean to cease to exist or decay or cease to be of any use and so these are things that go along with the idea of what's being presented here that there are people that are in the state of being saved, or not in a state, in a continuous state. They're in the process of being saved, and there are people who are in the process of perishing. That's the contrast here that Paul offers Corinthians. Here is one more. Let me, let me throw this one out. The end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He exhorts the people. Did anybody else come across this one and wonder what it meant? He encourages the people. He tells them with great feeling that it needs to happen, that they would be saved from this perverse generation. And that's an interesting thought. What do you think that means? One of the things that I would tie this to is Romans 12, 1 and 2. In 12, 2, do you remember what that says? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this being part of a generation we speak of that really often today. Generation X, everybody's heard of that. We've, generation Y, they got all kinds of terms about generations. Why do they put handles on this, you know, like baby boomers generation? And why, why are they talking about these generations? And in what context are they talking about these generations? The culture of them. So millennials, have you heard of millennials now? The, the millennial generation, what is that? They're talking about how people think, the way they process stuff, what their belief system is, generally speaking, as a group. And what Peter was really speaking here is to have oneself removed from this way of thinking, from this approach to life, and being placed into a whole new way of seeing things. And it's a perversion of truth that brought Jesus to the cross. It's a perversion of truth that crucified Jesus. Interestingly, I just, you might remember this. You remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus? And you remember the rich man, he was not in a good place after he died. But Lazarus was where? In the bosom of Abraham. Whatever that meant. They knew what that meant. I mean, that was their terminology back then, by the way. Jesus was using their terminology. And do you remember what the rich man asked? After he said, hey, can I have some water? Send, send Lazarus down here to get me some water. And Abraham said, can't do that. And then remember what he asked after that? Send him to warn my brothers. This is a bad place I'm in. Send Lazarus to warn my brothers about this. And do you remember what Abraham answered? They have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe that, they're not going to believe if a man was raised from the dead. Do you remember that? What was, the man, what was the person's name that this Jewish man wanted to have raised from the dead? Lazarus. Do you remember what happened to a man named Lazarus in Bethany? The brothers tried to kill him. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, the religious officials plotted to kill Lazarus. Because they didn't want the word spreading that he was raised from the dead. Sir, I'm not implying that Jesus was actually talking about the Lazarus that he raised from the dead. We don't know that he was the poor man who 
sat on the side of the road by but it's an interesting thing and I think that Jesus probably this by the way is the only story that Jesus told that had somebody's name in it I think when Lazarus was raised from the dead which was after this story I think people went hmm if they had heard the other one the point is that that generation that Peter was talking to had a way of thinking that would not even allow them to respond to a miracle as great as somebody being raised from the dead would not allow them to be responded. You remember Jesus said, if you don't believe me for my words, at least believe the works that I do. Shortly after saying that, you know what they said to him? What miracle are you going to do to authorize yourself? Anyway, this was a generation from which people really did need to be saved. That was perverse in their thinking. So there are many passages like this. I'm interested. I want to break these down a little bit for you. I want to just end with this then. I'm going to try to summarize all of this. From what are we being saved? I put it into three areas. One area is our enemy. The reign of the devil, the world. If you go through the verses that you found about salvation and saved and so forth, I think you'll find them to fit into these three categories. Our enemy, and there's more to our enemy than just the devil. So we have the devil and the world. Sin and death, all of those are referenced as enemies. A second area is judgment, current judgment and future judgment. The stored up wrath and the existing wrath, the revealed wrath. A third category is loss of life. And I would add to that being condemned to live a life that is not life. This, by the way, was the only thing that I came to God for. When I first exhibited saving faith, it was only that God might save me from the life I was currently living. I had no confidence in being saved from judgment, none whatsoever. I was very aware of my guilt and that God would have been certainly justified in judging me and I had no confidence in his willingness to forgive me. So what is salvation? Let me give you this to think on. This is from uh, Dallas Willard. He said salvation is an invitation to be interactively joined with a dynamic, unseen system of divine reality in the midst of which all humanity moves about, whether it knows it or not. Now that's a big mouthful. That's hard to get your mind around that. That's from the Divine Conspiracy in page 68. I would say that to be made alive spiritually by receiving the very life of Christ and experience, experiencing all that reality offers. And we'll, we'll cover that a whole lot more. I want you to think about that. I will quit here. Let me just say a quick prayer and then next week I'll summarize it in three points. Jesus, we want your life to be lived in us, through us, like Paul talked about in his letter to the Galatians, that nevertheless he lives, but the life he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of Man, who loved him and gave his life for him. And we believe that you love us and gave your life for us, and we want to live that life. But many times we just have a hard time knowing what that looks like, knowing how to do it, and even feeling sometimes even motivated to do it. And so I pray that you would just enliven us 
our mind, strengthen our courage, strengthen our resolve. More importantly, help us to know your love. And I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. Our vision at TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.